1: Bob Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob, and joining us again is our pal Yisrael Ari Gutblat. Hello, Yisrael. Welcome back to the show, man.
2: Hey, Rob. Thanks, very, thanks for having me back.
1: Yes, I'm very excited to have you back. Everyone loved your appearance and uh, your, your first episode, so I'm very excited to have you back for this one. Especially since the song we're going to be talking about is another song from Modern Times, which is, that's your favorite Dylan album, right? Is that
2: right? Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. Man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it continues to be my, my favorite Dylan <laughs> okay. album. Though there are other, there are other, you know, sometimes I'll go down a different rabbit hole and, right. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it nothing suppl- supplants it though.
1: Okay. The, so the, far. Yeah. The song we're talking about uh, this time is Working Man's Blues number two. It is track six. Of the album, and uh, it is one of my favorite things uh, the guy has ever done. I mean, to give people a little bit of context that are not uh, as obsessed Dylan fans as, as, as uh, we are, is that I think this is the kind of song that people have been clamoring for him to write for 30 years. You know, this is a State of the Nation <laughs> song, you know? I mean, it's it's right there in the title, uh, Working Man's Blues Number 2, because it's, it's sort of a riff on... Merle Haggard's song, which was "Working Man's Blues" from I think 1970, which was a sort of state of the nation at that time, and this mm. is this is Dylan following in the the folk country tradition of of you know taking that song and sort of doing his own thing on it. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's musically it's completely different, and the the perspective is different, but it's it's the same idea. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, this thing is just—it's—it's it's stately. It's an epic song. So I, let's talk about it a little. Israel, why—you know—why did you want to talk about this one?
2: Well, you—I mean, I, I'll ask you that because you, even though I had told you about Modern Times is, you know, my favorite album, and and this is one of the best songs—if not the best song in the album—but um, then you you came back to me like, let's definitely do this one. So I, I, let me throw that back at you. <laughs> uh, what, what personally to you, besides what you just said about? The kind of epic quality. What personally to you does it calls out to you about the song?
1: Well, I mean, like I said, first of all, musically, it's really very beautiful. Uh, I can't, as we've talked about in previous episodes, I don't know anything about music, so I can't speak to how it, sort how it's constructed. But the sound of it, and first of all, it opens up with, uh, I believe it's Dylan playing the piano. It's somebody playing the piano. I think it's Dylan.
2: That, I think I'm pretty sure it's Dylan. Yeah. Okay.
1: So it opens with this beautiful sort of shimmering piano sound. So it already. Right from the beginning, before you even hear Bob talk, it has this sort of wistful tone to it, which is a, a stark contrast to the songs you've heard to this point. Um, I mean, it really doesn't sound like anything else on the album. And it's you know, it's it's a micro and macro song. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's a it's a guy who is sitting there reminiscing. He's talking to the love, you know, a woman in his life or his partner, and then but it also expands out to talking about. Society. I mean, the opening verse of the song is startling. It says, there's an evening haze settling over town, starlight by the edge of the creek. The buying power of the proletariat's gone down. Money's getting shallow and weak. The place I love best is a sweet memory. It's a new path that we trod. They say low wages are a reality if we want to compete abroad. I mean, for God's sakes, the man is able to put the word "proletariat" in a song yeah. and have it sound smooth. You know, I mean, I mean, again, we've talked about this on on with you know you and I talked about this on your previous episode, and we've talked about this on the show in general. That I think Dylan is a masterful singer. Uh, he doesn't have a pretty voice, but I think he is a masterful singer. And I think this is an example. Most people, if they jam the word "proletariat" in their song, it would thud on the ground because it would right. sound so. So forced, and yet he's able to just glide it out, and it sounds so perfectly. But just this first, first verse really sets the tone of, like, wow, he's he's tackling huge themes here. I mean, this is, a, you know, a, a huge scope that he's taking on. And again, it just doesn't sound like anything else in the album to that point.
2: Right. I mean, the, the, the use of the word mean, it reminds A lot of this song and, and this whole album and a lot of things seen through um, – I see through the lens, actually, of, of Chronicles a lot. There's a lot of things that, that put put a lot of things in perspective. And one, one thing that jumps out at me with the use of the word pro- proletariat is when he's talking about Robert Johnson, he just throws out there, and I'm sure there's a reference that maybe I didn't catch, but something, he says something to the effect of Robert Johnson would never say Washington is a bourgeois town. <laughs> <laughs> and if it, it if and if it ever occurred to him, he wouldn't. It would, you know, it probably never occur to him, you know. So like, it, it's it seems like a similar type of perspective, you know, when you're just discussing on a polit- these kind of are, um, these political terms that are very, um, you know, pro- pro- proletariat has this very formal, it, you know, very words of the of the people, you know, the kind of things that uh, Dave Von Ronk was trying, you know, uh, trying to get Dylan more involved in back in the early 60s these kind of workers unite kind of conversations um and he kind of throws that in um it's yeah it's 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 is, it's is kind of a um a funny juxtaposition he throws in there you know um and it does give it that very broad perspective but maybe even a little bit um tongue-in-cheek as, yeah. as well you know, because who 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 speaks about the proletariat? You yeah. know, except, except politicians, you know. Right. Like, like yeah. you know, communist politicians. Yeah. You know? like, right. I mean, um, so it's kind of an old. You know, who? I, mean, I don't think anyone throws that word around now. You know, no. it's, it's, a, it's a word. It's a word out of like communist literature, essentially. You know? like, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but 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 the thing is, the song is so it it, it really reflects his ethic, his work ethic, mm-hmm. and and his work ethic is very. Very anti-communist, I think. Um, in, I mean, not to get political in that way, but but meaning, I, I don't think it's a political message so much as uh, a, a, a statement of a certain. I think he does. I think it is a kind of an Americana kind of vibe, and I think the Merle Haggard connection definitely has that that kind of a certain kind of. And he speaks about this in Chronicles as well. This kind of American work ethic um, that he relates to and yeah so I mean that so the the idea that um you know w- when he's kind of speaking about the, the this, everything in this song kind of speaks on 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 that certain level you know, expressing his work ethic, but it again when you say the micro level, it gets down to a very i think I feel like it's in a very internal there's a very internal type of work that's going on there too, but we could we could talk about that more because I think that's like kind of the more esoteric level of the song. Yeah, I mean,
1: in the second yeah. verse, it shifts uh, from that sort of macro down to the micro. When he, The second verse, he says, My cruel weapons have been put on the shelf. Come sit down on my knee. You are dearer to me than myself, as you yourself can see. I'm listening to the steel rails hum, got both eyes tight shut, just sitting here trying to keep the hunger from creeping its way into my gut. And so now I feel like with the second verse, we've got a, a clearer picture of what's going on here. I mean, this guy is talking to someone in particular – He's hungry, you know. I mean, he flat out mentions trying to keep the hunger from creeping its way into his gut. I mean, yeah, you, you mentioned right. it's not so much a political song in the in the in the the, the way we think of political. I mean, when someone now says political, you're thinking like you're uh, the word has come to mean sort of advocating a particular stance, right? Uh, and he's not here. He's not. I mean, I, I agree totally. He is someone very interested in that sort of old timey kind of Americana view of a work ethic. There's a line later on in the song where he talks about there are some people... Uh, let me let me scroll right down down to some the,
2: some people never work a day in their life don't know what work even means that that's the last line in the, in, yeah. in the yeah it's the last line of the song out before the last chorus yeah
1: right and and you know it sums think, it all up yeah, yeah and yeah. i think that gets revealed in uh, in his interviews uh, because like right. you know when he's been interviewed by Rolling Stone or somebody else and they ask him about you know hey bob do you what happens do you think happens to the soul after it dies he's like why am i being asked this stuff you know but if you right. but if you ask him <laughs> You ask him about being a working musician, you know, mm-hmm. being, a, being a guy that works. I mean, people have said to him, geez, you work a lot. You work 175 days a year. And he's sort of like, well, that's what I do. That's my job. Yeah. And so, yeah, I agree totally that he has this view of a, 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 you work hard, and he works hard at what he does. Mm-hmm. He is a musician.
2: Um, always has. Yeah. Always, always
1: has. Always has. Always
2: has. And, and, this, and what, I mean, one of the, I, I find the most inspiring thing about the song, just to get right down to it, for me, is really it conveys a way to as a songwriter I, I take it directly, but I feel like it could apply to to almost anything in in how to learn from that work ethic I mean part of what makes him so great, besides the fact that obviously he had a you know very great has a great very great innate talent that that's undeniable, but it's his work ethic that leaves everybody else in the dust <laughs> I mean there was no reason for him to have to write song after song after song for year after year after year, there was no reason other than it's an internally motivated thing. You know, and the whole, I mean, and the song has a lot to do with this idea of like external and internal. You know, there, are, there are those who worry and, you know, hurry and fuss and they fret, you know, and then, and then there are, you know, those, you know and there's like the contemplation, you know, that, that, you know, peaceful, sacred fields. Like there's this dynamic between the, you know, the people who are internally motivated, whose work is, is integral and not, some kind of external thing to impress other people or to or to look some way but actually has an integrity and 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 I feel like the man lives lives that, and this song really expresses that and you can and it's evidenced by everything he's done and and as a as a songwriter, I see so many people songwriters that i that I've worked with and and that i've um, mostly not the <laughs> you know, the the very successful ones. even some of the more successful ones I mean obviously they pale in comparison to Dylan's output. But you know, could stand to learn from him. But this, there's this idea certainly people who are aspiring songwriters um, really don't get this idea of, of a work ethic. They, they feel like a song has everything to do with people's reaction to it. And the success of a song has everything to do with how, or success of a musician has everything to do with how people recognize you, how, how they recognize your talent. And Dylan's coming from a totally another perspective, and, and he always has, and that That the quality of a a songwriter, the quality of any kind of worker, especially an artist um, or an artisan, is that they are internally driven and not completely uninterested. But generally, it's not their number one priority. What people think of them, or what they're, what you know, how what they're, the way they're seen, or or how their output is going to be received, or even even the, the income that they're going to make from what they do. They do what they do because that's what they do. You know, that's kind of the bottom line of the work ethic, and I, and I, I get a lot out of that, and I hear, I see that in this song, but, and, and just to reference Chronicles, he, Woody Guthrie, he, he talks about learning how to live from Woody Guthrie's songs in Chronicles, and he he also, and I feel like that about this song, and, and he also says this thing, I think is the key to the whole song. When he reads um, Woody Guthrie's book, Bound for Glory, he says, Woody Guthrie divides the world into people that work and people that don't. And I, I found that you know, really intriguing, this idea, because Dylan himself really never worked a day in his life. I mean, he, music is work. The, the writing he's done, it's certainly a lot of intellectual work, a lot of traveling, a lot, a lot of playing. That's for sure. But clearly, I think, according to one biography I read, that he, you know, he only had one job when he was a teenager. He was only employed once in his life. Yeah. So like, yeah. according to typical ways of looking at work, he's never worked a day in his life, yep. <laughs> you know? So, but at the same, so that's not the way he looks at work. That's employment. You know, <laughs> like, work is something else. Work, the way the way he might think that Woody Guthrie defines it, the way he defines it, is, is this idea of, no matter what, whether the hunger's creeping its way into your gut, I, you know, whether they burn, you know, burn my barn and they stole my horse. You know, there's this battle going on in the song also, which should probably be good to talk about, um, which is connected to this. But this idea, because... In order to do to, to to follow this path, there has to be a battle. There's an inner battle. There's also an outer battle with circumstances. How do I make a living? And you know, um, and this is something that I find, in a personal level, very inspiring. He, he's inspiring, and this song is kind of a key to that. Um, that particular example of someone who can, um, you know, I can can I toil away and and be prolific in what I do, kind of stepping out of the 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 concept of what. I think other people should have of me. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the idea that uh, th- that was something that occurred to me years ago. That it's like, wow, Bob Dylan's never had a job. He's <laughs> never had a job because he's been famous since he was about 19, 18, 19. So he has he's been completely removed from an experience that 99.9 percent of the world has experienced, which is being you know having a job, and he's never had that, and yet. You know, a guy who clearly is as wealthy as Bob and lives a rarefied world uh, as Dylan does, I mean, you know, for God's sakes, he just won the Nobel Prize, Uh, you know. Right. And
2: and look at his reaction to that. Yeah. You know, there's an external accolade and he hasn't even responded. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, and so in some ways, you know, a guy in his rarefied position, a guy that hangs with presidents and popes and whatnot, writing a song about the working man could come across as either condescending were right. really clueless, you know, just really out, like, uh, you know, horrible, uh, and it's sort of pandering to trying to make it sound like, oh, I I know what it's like to be a common man. He doesn't. Bob Dylan has never known what it's like to be a common man. He probably hasn't known that since, probably he was eight or nine. Right. You know, right. And, you know when it <laughs> dawned on him that he could write songs. It was clear that he's very different. But yet, you, like you talked about, this song isn't about employment. It's about toiling at what you do, and that can be anything. I mean, the refrain of this uh, song is, meet me at the bottom, don't lag behind, which is, of course, taken from another song, As Bob's doing all sorts of stealing right. here, left and right. Right, right, uh, He said, bring me my boots and shoes. You can hang back or fight your best on the front line. Sing a little bit of these working man's blues. And the idea of hang back or fight your best on the front line. Now, of course, you could be like, is he is he talking about a literal battle or is he talking about more of a metaphorical one? And I tended to think it's more of a metaphorical one. It's, are you doing what you should be doing? Whatever that is. Right. Are you participating? Right. Are you doing that thing? Or are you just <clears throat> hanging back? And he he really probably, yeah, doesn't have a lot of respect for people who just sit it out. Whatever the it is, he doesn't, you know, he's really trying to get people, at least the character in the song, he's trying to energize you to participate or get on the
2: front line. Well, well it's interesting. I mean, First of all, I, I think that that hang back or fight your best on the front line. I actually think he's giving two viable options from his worldview. Meaning, fight your best on the front line is kind of what he does. It's kind of what certain people do when when they're actively engaged in, in tearing down whatever kind of walls and obstacles that that are in the, in their in the way of of achieving whatever they want to achieve. But that the hang back part, it seems like he's giving a positive. Like he's giving a positive view that there are certain people. Meaning, you can't and not everybody. It has the, the, the interest or the inclination to be waging battles, <laughs> whether it's internal battles or battles with external circumstances, or, you know, I mean, everyone has to deal with what they have to deal with. But when I hear that hang back, I hear either, either you're involved in the work or you're supporting the work. Mm. And, and I feel like that's a, that's the hang back part, like that you can and, and that's, and I think that's, in a way, kind of a, a nod to his fans, in a way, because not all, because most of the people that are listening to the songs are not on the front lines of any artistic or even craft revolution, you know. Yeah,
0: that's. But yes. but,
2: but, but but they're supportive of it. They they're appreciative of it. They're, they you know, and in their workaday life, they 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 emulate it. That that spirit. So I feel like that's kind of the hang back. It's it's I mean, it's okay to be that kind of person. But I, mean, I mean, certain times in your life, you might be one or the other also. Um, and also, you know, the, the thing. That I remember, there was a quote from um, Alan Toussaint, you know, the great New Orleans songwriter. Right, freedom for the stallion Um, guy,
1: right? Right. You write that song, yeah.
2: So, yeah. So he, it was a documentary I saw um, with about him and Professor Longhair and um, some other New Orleans piano players, Toots Washington, and he makes this amazing quote that sat with me, and I never, until in the view of this song and some other experiences, really understood what he meant. But he says, "Some people wake up in the morning and build cabinets." I wake up in the morning and I write songs, and that's how Alan Toussaint. Alan Toussaint is kind of very similar to Dylan in that way. He's very prolific. Um, obviously, not as famous, but he he also you know in in his own way he he de- didn't draw attention to himself. He was behind the scenes a lot. And and I've I've always thought about I always loved that quote, and I and I really feel like that's kind of where Dylan is is you know and that that's kind of the, the inspiration that I get. Um, regardless of what's going on externally, whether my band is, be- is being paid attention to or people are, you know, it's it, whatever's happening it, the, to me, that's, you know, it might happen, it might not uh, on whatever level. Um, it, but essentially, if, if I depended on having a, you know, um, playing for hundreds of people in order to write songs. And for a while, that was a conundrum for me. It was like, there's nobody who's really, there's not a, a huge audience that's interested in my songs. So then, I kind of have to wait till there is to start writing songs, <laughs> but at the or to start writing the songs in in a prolific way. But actually, you know what? That's, that's that seems to be kind of backwards. What if I what if I just got up and I wrote every day, and 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 the audience comes or you know or they don't, but but the writing is is developing, and so that and so I actually when I actually was living in Woodstock, I worked for a cabinet maker, hmm. and and I was thinking about this this cabinet maker, how he I mean he did construction that that kind of paid a lot of the bills. Um, and I mostly helped him with that. But when in the cabinet shop, he I, I really saw that ethic. Like he couldn't care less what, even though he had well, he had wealthy, well-paying clients buying his cabinets, he really was not. That was not. He didn't get moved by the fact that they bought his cabinets or liked his cabinets. Hmm. he was he took pride in the work and and it was. I think that's kind of what you're saying, he, you know, he, the fact that he's take, Dylan is taking lines from other, it reminds me of like yeah. a cabinet maker taking a piece of wood from here, a piece of wood from there yeah. and putting it together into a new, you know, thing. Yeah. I mean, uh,
1: the, the, that's it, interesting that, that you bring that up. Cause I've, I've, I experienced that myself back when I was younger and I was starting out a career as, as an illustrator and I had people that, you know, would ask me about you know how did you do it how did you get clients and i would you know talk about blah 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 well i do this and they i would say then they would say well i'm interested in being an artist too but i'm going to wait until somebody pays me to do it
2: right and i was sort of <laughs> right. like
1: well then you don't really want to do it because you know i mean i was at the, at that time i was younger and i had a lot of energy but i was in my you know early 20s and i was cranking out several illustrations at night because they had it in me to do and right. nobody was paying me for this stuff it was simply in me and I think that's that's what you're talking about. That's what Dylan talked about writing his songs. I mean, there's that. I, I put famous in quotes because who who except for die hard die hard Bob Dylan fans have even heard this story. But the whole bit about um, that he wrote songs for Time Out of Mind, which had which was right in the uh, like a drought. He had gone five or six years where he hadn't written anything, and apparently mm. he was up in his farm in Minnesota, and a giant snowstorm hit, and he was basically stuck there for a while. And when he finally got word to his manager, the manager said, "Well, you know, you're all right, Bob. What have you been doing?" He goes, "Oh, I'm writing songs again." And he says, "That's just what he does. He's off in the yeah. farm, and he snowed in, and he's writing songs." And now, of course, I didn't know that story. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, Dylan knows any song he writes is instantly worth its weight in gold because he's Bob Dylan. Any song that's been penned by by that man knows it has value in the marketplace. Uh, but nevertheless, it's yeah that kind of that mentality of working and you know yeah i mean that's that's what's all over the song and there's there's just such a sweetness to it and i think his his vocal is very warm uh in some of the previous songs it's more clipped and it's a little more sharp but this is i mean there's a there's a verse here where he talks about he says well they burned my barn that you you mentioned this they burned my barn they stole my horse i can't save a dime I've got to be careful. I don't want to be forced into a life of continual crime. The way he mm. sings, "I can't save a dime," Yeah, yeah. it's to me so powerful because yeah. I've lived through that. You know, where I'm, I'm mm-hmm. toiling away and I'm working hard, and you know, bills come and they're all out. It's all gone, and I'm like, "What did right. I do all that for?" You know, and just right. the way the way he's able to to infuse that line where it doesn't sound phony. I'm, Bob Dylan has never had to worry about saving a dime in his life. But
2: he well, I I don't don't know about that. I mean, no, I I don't. I don't think so. Because I mean, listen, I mean, the fame thing is a funny thing because a lot of people chase fame and they and they have this idea that once they and Dylan talks about this once once they reach this certain level of fame, it's a Basically, it's a false paradise. Once they reach a certain level of fame, once a person reaches a certain level of riches, then they'll be happy. And ultimately, that's clearly not the case. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, people still fall for that and go for it. And, the, and the, again, there are musicians, songwriters, I know, who that's kind of their goal. And and almost anybody else who's achieved the level of fame that he has would just stop writing. I mean, there are many examples yeah. of 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 you know very talented uh, songwriters who who had a bunch of hits and then their output just stops. Right. You know, I mean, it's you can almost look at almost anyone else besides dylan is like that you know um almost anyone else and and that's so it's this i, I mean certainly going back to his let's say the the gaslight days you know i mean he left home he i mean I, I don't think that i understand yeah of course he he once he started having hits and having royalties then it's hard to imagine that that he's he's concerned about how he's con, can pay for his next meal yeah. but but yeah, I, I get the feeling that his way of looking at the world was was locked in before the fame and the money came in and it kind of just stayed with him and he, he kind of I think he probably had to develop it in, in light of the fame certainly fame has been a, a burden for him in, in a lot of ways yes um, but and so I think he maybe equates the hunger and the, and, the, and the and the that that a, that a average person might um, understand in terms of you know, being out of money for the month and not being able to pay their bills and, you know, not being able to afford things that they want or even need. Um, but he may not be able to relate to that in his current life. But I think that in, in a metaphorical, like you were saying, I think he can relate to that, just like we were saying in terms of his his um, his song droughts, his songwriting droughts. That's like a hunger. That that's mm. a, a starving. You know, that's a, that's a place. Especially if that's exactly his ethic, <laughs> he's gonna start. You know what I mean? He's gonna be working on on writing songs, and he and he's, and he doesn't have it. You know, he does. If, if a cabinet maker doesn't have enough money to buy his basic tools or, or materials, then he may, he may be a great cabinet maker, but he he's he's starving. You know, so I feel like like Dylan has experienced that. Um, but also, that back in the days of of the the West Village, I get the feeling reading reading chronicles and other accounts. Um, that he kind of his ethic, and again, I, I get inspiration from this and learning how to, how to have a perspective on money. Um, he every he talks about when he talks about his experiences in Town and then he talks about his experiences in the West Village. he, because he was playing so much, and and some of it had to do with just his fortune, you know, and his good fortune. I think he's recognizing of that. But he he talks about being able to afford when he starts having to pay rent in Dinky Town. He he says he says this in there, and he also says it regarding the village, something to the effect of, it was I, I had no problem paying that rent, and with a lot of pride, hmm. you know, like he he was playing in the basket house every day in Dinky Town and in, in Minneapolis. He was playing in the basket houses, every, you know, and he got the job at the gaslight in, in New York, and he was able to afford a rent. And for him, and then he built furniture there. You know, for him, that that idea of making money was is was a source of great pride. That he was working, he was putting a lot of effort in, and then here was, he was, you know, very proud of himself, able to pay his rent. Um, and I think he, I get that sense that that's something that, even though not everybody has the experience of, of having these, you know, wealth and royalties. But I think that that particular approach, um, I, per- I personally find a lot of inspiration for me. You know, I know, mean, have a, you know, uh, thank God I have a you know, family to feed, you know, a uh, you know, um, number of ch- children and, and, you know, uh, rent and all these, these pressures and bills and different things. And it's, it's easy to get swamped and overwhelmed and, and basically creatively stifled. By the worry and the hurry and the fuss and the fret of all that, (laughs) so so so, right and and so the exactly so the battle the battle is almost to 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 reach that peaceful sacred field. He says something about else about um, you know he has a lot of ideas of contemplation. I think in the in the what you um, like the second verse meaning the between the the, the after the first chorus, you know he he talks about I'm trying to feed my soul with thought, and to me that that protecting that that peace of mind peaceful sacred fields it's it there are dangers to it there are people who want to slash you steal you know there are you know there are um there there's there's like almost in the song there are you mentioned there was like a lover character in the song i'm not so sure if it's a, it could be a lover it could also be like a child or grandchild
1: it's I mean, a loved one i should say yeah. a loved
2: one and there's because then he mentions a friend um but it, but basically there's there's a very black and white relationship between him and, and these enemies like, there are, there, are, there are these people he's going to battle against. There are people who, who would um, bring the, you know, bring the, the um, you know, maybe the enemies of the working man, so to speak, that are that are kind of would tear, you know, as he says in, I feel like Modern Times has this, you know, it's all connected. In the last song of Modern Times, he says that they'll tear your mind away from contemplation. You know, he's talking about these kind of enemies of mm. of thought, enemies of peaceful thought, and, and that, that's reflected here. And so there's that level, and he's kind of going to – going to battle against them or rather they they're kind of pulling him you know they, they they come after him almost like he's forced to go to go out and deal with them um, because he's of his hunger or something but then there's also um, then he has his the loved one sit down on my knee you know uh, the sun is set you know the sun, i can see for myself the sun is sinking how i wish you were here to see there's there's a certain tenderness tender person he's talking to but then he's then there's this line he says um you know, you've wounded me with your words. <laughs> you know, which old old memories of you to me have clung. You've wounded me with your words, which is like now here's someone who he thought was close, hmm. or is close, who who's kind of doing the work of these enemies of these you know ones who are slashing with steel. You know, and, and he's I don't know. It's, and he, that line he, I have, I'm gonna have to straighten out your tongue. <laughs> it's all true. Everything you heard there's a. <laughs> that's like. One of the toughest lines I've he's written.
1: <laughs> There's a, there is a lot of stuff here that I I do find a little on the sort of baffling. Like I'm not exactly sure what he's saying, but it sort of gives a general. Like what? Like what? To, well, I I just some of the stuff about uh, now the place is ringed with countless foes. I mean, that's kind of what you're talking about. Some of them may be definitely yeah. um dumb. No man, no woman knows the hour that sorrow will come. In the dark, I hear the nightbird's call. I can hear a lover's breath. It's it's. I, I guess that's sort of the stuff where I'm going, what what exactly Who's – what is he exactly referring to? But then he ends that particular verse with, mm-hmm. again, a wonderfully evocative image. I sleep in the kitchen with my feet mm-hmm. in the hall. Sleep is like a temporary death. And I always took that – again, the image it conjures up my mind is, is a working man, is someone who's working – has probably a very tiny little house and he's come home and he's so exhausted that he falls asleep in his kitchen.
0: You right, know, right, he just, he just yeah, passes
1: yeah. out and the, the house is so small – that, you know, you're laying, you're sitting in the kitchen chair, and your legs are sticking into another... I mean, I may be taking it too literally, but that's the image I get of just... you're. you're You know, this is a guy who's been working in the fields all day, and he just collapses into his chair in his working clothes, and the sleep is like a temporary death is sort of, you know... hanging well, that,
2: well, that's the thing. I mean, the, the same with the work ethic. You can, one way you could look at it is that sleep is like a temporary death, meaning a, a working person... Is not doesn't indulge in sleep. I mean, it means that for a person who seeks pleasure and relaxation, um, you know, they want to get their their comfortable bed and, and their comforter, and they'll, they'll you know all of us like to you know I'm sure um, enjoy the, uh, sleeping in and you know having a nice a nice sleep. Yeah. But somebody who's kind of a man on a mission, a soldier, a, a, a working person who's you know who's working you know their their knuckles to the to the bone to feed their family, like in Merle Haggard's song. Kind of image, um, you know. Yeah, he he he's not. He, his sleep is 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 a temporary sleep. I mean, his sleep is a um, is just just catch catch what you need kind of z's in order to you know, like a soldier's sleep. That's kind of the image I get there. Also, by the way, it's 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 a, a Talmudic um, that uh, that's a, a Talmudic statement. Um, it says sleep is um, is one sixtieth of death. Hmm. I don't know if, if that's his, his direct uh, you know reference, but. That that evokes that for me. Um, there's there's idea of the whole idea of death in the song. There's a lot of sinking in the song. I mean, this it starts out. There's an e- you know evening haze settling over town. The whole song is sinking. You know, I can see for myself the sun is sinking. The music even sinks. It even it even has this descending. Meet me at the bottom. Don't lag behind. There's something you know to go down. Um, which is I don't know. What, what do you think? Have you did you have you thought about that? What that.
1: I did do a little bit of reading about, again, the, the mm-hmm. musicality part of it, and it mentions like the bass line, like a descending bass line, and that's sort of the, the hook of the song. And again, I'm only really vaguely familiar with even what you're talking about when, when someone talks about a descending bass line. But I can I I do get that sense of, yeah, like it's, it's always, I mean, not only does he mention the lyrics, but the, the, the way the song sounds, it sounds like sunset. It sounds like things are, right. you know, things are getting dark or things are, and you know, I mean... You can't help. Once again, Dylan seems to be way ahead of the curve. I mean, you cannot help, but at least I can't. You know, think about this song in the context of what we're going through in terms of a presidential election. I mean, the the discussions we're having about you know these towns, these these people, there are these groups of people that are feeling left out and abandoned, and you know these towns that were once these thriving places where you could go and 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 feed your family and now they're ghost towns and right. you know dylan is i mean he's obviously got uh sympathy for them but he's also yeah. sort of standing outside of it too and looking at it and you know like i said it's i you know i the, you know this is 2006 i mean he's 10 years ahead uh, you know i mean not that these weren't issues in 2006 they were issues then they were issues they've been issues with us for decades but they really seem to be coming to the fore now and that kind of feeling of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a, a plight of the working man, the regular working man. And he is, you know, recognizing that. But he's recognizing it in all of its, you know, weird in the idiosyncrasies and things like that because obviously these people aren't perfect. You know they're not heroes. I mean, he recognizes that's you know that they're flawed like anybody else, and that's that's sort of the yin and yang of this that I got as it goes on. I right. mean, the song is like about seven or eight minutes. It's a epic song, and again, sit in placed where it, it is and right in the middle of the album. Uh, and I mean, the, the damn name of the album is Modern Times. Right. Uh, I can't help but feel that this is sort of like the you know the the the, the big statement. Uh, you know, to sure, lack of a better term.
2: Well, one of the—I mean—one of the other references to, I think, in terms of kind of the classic working man, you know, job that that's considered and it's discussed. I've seen in some of the uh, presidential coverage talking about certain working conditions is uh, issues of, of coal and miners. And I and I hear the idea of meet me at the bottom. The the re, what made me think about meet me at the bottom, kind of one image comes to mind is of of a miner. Mm. Is is because um, well boots and shoes, I don't know if that relates to a minor I think I've never been a minor, but the but, uh, Working Man's Dead, the, the Grateful Dead album Working Man's Dead, which, you know, immediately vote has a song on it called Cumberland Blues, which is about mining. which is about mining. Um we gotta go down to the Cumberland Mine. And it, it's you know, it's so there there I feel like I don't know if he's explicitly referencing that, but I feel like there's a kind of a minor vibe, you know, canary in the cold mine kind of um, Image in in this song, um, that that you know that I get from that just I mean that line meet me at the bottom particularly, um, yeah. But also yeah, I mean also meet me at the bottom I think is is this battle I mean the first, we I, I see it you know it's kind of like four long verses with the choruses in between and it's almost like the the first one he sets the stage. I get the sense of like an old man, you know, an old working man, who's who's seeing things slipping away for his country for himself. Um, you know, things are, uh, you know, the, the place that, the, that they love is a sweet memory. I mean, things are, are old in the past, and and it's con- kind of like um, a, a resignation. But then this idea, I'm sa- the second verse starts, I'm sailing on back, ready for the long haul, which which feels like a trucker reference. Like, it feels like there's a couple of different, you know, I get the, this hit of, like, a very classic kind of working man kind of references. Like, that's clearly a trucker reference, sailing on back ready for the long haul, um, and, and, you know, and I, you know, tossed by the winds and the sea, I mean, so um, then, then it's almost like there's this willingness to fight, this need to fight, and to fight what exactly, you know, the, like we were saying, these, these. Um, I mean, obviously in the political sense, and the larger sense, there, there are certainly um, real and imagined enemies of the working man, um, whether it be, you know, diminishing jobs and corporate greed or other things. But I, I feel like on, on a, like you were saying, on a metaphorical level, that each one of us really confronts these challenges, these obstacles, to achieving our sense of inner peace, um, our sense of, of doing what it is that we love. I mean, so many people get caught up in do not you know, f- wanting to do what they love, but be- out of certain kinds of fear or sense of obligation, don't do it. You know, they they. I f- and I I get a strong sense of that from the song that they, there's this like, I mean, Dylan has always been a, a kind of a, an example of someone who just kind of always did what he wants to do. You know, mm-hmm. um, un- unapologetically. And I feel like can be you know, no, no, no one else can be him. But I feel like that any anyone can learn from that example to, you know and, and some, sometimes it takes a battle sometimes it it takes a battle with with those who will wound you with their words you know who will, who will burn your bar you know who will, um slash you with steel you know but there's a sense of hope in this song that that he um you know he's he's fighting back you know and he's yeah um and then ultimately he got he was at i when I, I mentioned um last time when i i heard this album meant a lot to me because it was the end i'd just gotten um divorced and and um and I was you know, kind of looking into the future, what, what's it gonna hold? Um and and that's line towards the end, I got a brand new suit and a brand new wife. <laughs> I can live on rice and beans, you know. To me with was like a source of great hope, you know. I I can I can have a brand new suit and a brand new wife. And, and thank God now I do, you know. Right. <laughs> like you know, and, and it's it's um you know, meaning things move forward, we, we, we don't we don't have to be bogged down by previous disappointments. Or the or the sinkingness of of you know the darkness of of the negativity of whether it's the buying power, you know the proletariat going down or anything else or the barn burn external circumstances that will keep us, um, you know keep our sa- peaceful sacred fields challenged that we can actually um, overcome it with a sense of, of hope and what is the how do we have, grab onto that hope it seems like that last line you know it's it's uh, you know, some people don't never work a day in their life. Don't know what work even means. To me, implies that like if you do know what work means, you'll kind of be all right.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, that's oh god, I'm I'm glad that you said that because yeah, for for a song that does seem so dark, it does. I mean, first of all, again, the music suggests uh, you know a, a lightness, even though the thing is constantly sort of descending. The the music is not upbeat, but it's not gloomy.
2: Right, it's, uh, it's it has not, a brightness to it. it yeah, yeah, it's not ain't
1: talking. You know, it's not right. Yeah, right. It ta- ain't talking. to me. It's just like the specter of death is looming over everything there. But yeah, this the idea of yeah, I can live on rice and beans. It, it sounds like a pretty hard scrabble existence, but you can do it. You know, you can you can do it to get by. And the the idea of yes, yeah, some people never worked a day in their life, don't know what work even means. That's sort of pushing those people off to the side. That's new. That's not who he's talking to, and presumably right. that's not who's listening. You know, you're you're listening to this. You're not one of those people. You know what work is like, and I'm singing for you. I mean, again, right. and it ends with sing a little bit of this working man, working man blues. I mean, the whole notion of the blues is that yeah, it's 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 people singing about their troubles, but they're singing about it.
2: They're, and an uplift, right? And it, yeah. it affects a catharsis or an uplifting, right? right. Quality.
1: Yeah, they're, they're.
2: I wonder what. You, oh, sorry.
1: No, I'm just, they're 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 taking yeah. they're internalizing what's going on and they're trying to exorcise it then by singing about it as opposed to just letting it crush you.
2: Right, right, and and also there's a sense of camaraderie here. I I was wondering what you thought. There was a line that I always heard one way, even when I listen to it, I still hear this one way, but in the printed lyrics it says it a little different, and that and that is. Um, the the line that's that says some, something like um uh, th- uh them I well this is the way I heard it um them I won't forget but you all remember always mm-hmm. well, how does that line start um uh,
1: now they worry and they uh, hurry and they fuss nights and days them I will forget but you I will remember always
2: so I hear it very clearly and sometimes he does this in lyrics where he'll print lyrics one way and sing them another them I won't forget. Hmm. But you all remember always, which to me even strikes me as stronger as them. I will forget. Yeah, of course they're forgettable. That's kind of implied by the you know that they're they're nonsense people, you know. But um, but them I won't forget. Kind of sticks with the theme of this battle. You know what I mean? Like I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna. But you know, he obviously the lyrics are printed differently, so I could be hearing it wrong I, I, I I've listened to it a few times, and it just it still seems like he says them. I won't forget. You know, but,
1: <laughs> it's interesting because huh. there's a line in this song that I've misheard myself. Is that I quoted this before? It's the, well, they burned my barn, they stole my horse. I can't save a dime. I got to be careful. I don't want to be forced. And the line right. as printed is into a life of continual crime. And I've always right. I, I heard it as into a life of continued decline.
2: Oh, that's funny. That's
1: a white
2: bird. No, but that's funny. I thought you were gonna say, "I can't save a dime." I, I always thought it was, "I can't say goodbye," until like I saw yeah, the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that. We, well, you know what? It, it's um, one of the, this this idea of of how he's kind of dismissing, you know, there's a sense of like dismissing these kind of people who are encroaching on real working people, the people who don't know what work means. You know the, the foes. You know um, places reamed with countless foes. You know deaf and dumb. All all these kind of like you know faceless, you know nameless people that are kind of enemies to our cause. You know, so to speak. Um, it reminds me a lot. And you brought up the, the political climate of now. Um, it it reminds me a lot of what what I can you know I consider to be kind of like a fulcrum of, of all of Dylan's songs in a way is is um, it's all right, mom, only bleeding. In the sense of you know, which which is obviously comes up most explicitly when you think about presidential <laughs> elections, and, you know, presidential references that But the um, but the idea that so what made me think about this, and and if you know, if uh, uh, this song is is one of you know another <laughs> favorite of mine um, to discuss. But it, what made me think about um, this idea that that on the surface that song, it's all right, ma, seems like a harsh indictment of you know, a lot of things in culture, but then, but then a closer look, it, it's almost like a much more introspective thing, like that, that I've, I have internalized a lot of these, this, this phony, um, false perspectives of, of, of this, you know, kind of superficial culture. And, and this song is an, is a kind of a successful attempt the way I see it to, to purge myself of that, um, you know, of that kind of, you know, um, I know I'm on, on a tangent, a different song, but you know yeah. it's a related. It, but you know I, I you know, uh, kick my heels inside can- handcuffs. This is kind of like liberating. Like I'm gonna be free of these superficial attitudes. Um, and then Working Man Blues, I kind of see in the same vein. It's like it looks like an indictment of, of a large culture, but but really it's it's almost like a very introspective thing. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna push off these negative my own negative thoughts that are keeping me down that are keeping me. Uh, you know, and and uh, that are keeping me from doing the real work I need to do, um, and and then of course that there's this the sweetest part of the song I feel like is this idea with, with, um, of this camaraderie. You know, and you my friend I find no blame. I mean he's talking about being so harsh with people. I'm gonna straighten out your tongue. You know I'm gonna they slash you with steel. You know I'm gonna uh, you know but here's like I, I but there's there is a sense of no there's there's a real us. There's a real sense of people. There are people who. Um and in an external way, people like people you can relate to that that share value your values in a way and your this work ethic. But then there's also this idea of um I don't know, I, I also get you mentioned it was like kind of there's a lover in there. I also kinda of get that sense too. Um that there's a sense of there's a there's a some kind of I mean I guess I can hear feel my hear the um hear the lover's breath line also evokes that. So yeah, there's a <laughs> um The song is chock full, Rob.
1: Yeah, I mean, mean, (laughs) Dylan, as we've known, uh, Dylan will take lines from other songs and put them into other, you know, a a line that was written for one song will show up in another song. I think he has a much more organic view of songwriting and that it is kind of, you know, themes weave in and out. It's sort of funny, the the whole notion of like being able to sort of pull in a little and, and give yourself time to think. Is, mm-hmm. is you know it's it's big in this song it's big in other songs and and, and it's funny yeah. i think about the liner notes that he wrote for world gone wrong uh which is the first time he's written liner notes for an album in 20 30 years and there's mm-hmm. a line there's a line in 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 the liner notes of of again talk about buried but in the liner yeah. notes of world gone wrong he talks about you know, getting back to a time before uh, the insane world of entertainment exploded in our faces. Hmm. And I think hmm. about that where it's like we have so much to distract ourselves now. We have more. I mean, how many – I mean, I'm sure you probably have – maybe you've done this yourself or you have friends that have done this that talk about, I don't have enough time to watch all the TV I want to watch.
2: Right. You right. know,
1: <laughs> like what a problem. Like what a, like what a thing to say. You know, you're, you have more entertainment than you can possibly consume and you're stressed out about it. You know, right, what right, an amazing, you know, uh, what an amazing thing to sort of, you know, stop for a moment and think about, you know. And so, yeah, you've got Bob returning to this notion of a very more, it's a much more antiquated life. It's a simpler life. And, you know, again, and for, for a guy who lives, again, the rarefied life that he lives, for him to be able to channel that is pretty remarkable. And that makes me think that must be why, you know, when he goes on tour – he is obsessed with, maybe not obsessed, that's probably maybe not fair, but why he is so constantly, you're hearing about, you know, he's tooling around in people's neighborhoods, you know? Right. I mean, he's not just spending all his time in the hotel. He's out there being around people. And I have to think that's how it surfaces are in these songs.
2: Right. And I mean, that in terms of his conduct, I mean, to the, to the degree that he is encroached upon by people to a great degree. And I, I feel like I hear a lot of that in this song as well. In, in him in particular, in, I mean, we've spoken about how we can apply it to, to our lives, but in terms of him, um, he, it's a very real sense of, of, of invasion of privacy. You know, he speak, writes about it in Chronicles. Um, it's it's a, probably a daily experience for him. I mean, if he leaves <laughs> his house and he tries to go incognito. You know, I mean, I've heard a lot of, you know, a lot of different stories about his his real sensitivity to that, and frankly, I spoke to um, I spoke to some people here in, in Crown Heights, where I live. Um, his his you know he spent time, and I, I sent you a picture. He'd visited that, the that amazing the,
1: picture you sent me of Bob sitting with all those rabbis.
2: Right. Well, he spent a lot of time. It wasn't as well. It wasn't anywhere near as publicized as his Christian experiences. Right, you know, because right. he did not make, could make ex- albums about it. But that happened right after. Very interestingly, there's a number of different stories. I, um, there's a rabbi who he spent a lot of time with, um, Rabbi Manus Friedman, who's a well-known speaker, who once uh, sat down with a bunch of us <laughs> local songwriters and, and you know uh, shared with us a lot of his, his dealing experiences, which were very interesting wow. <laughs> um, because they're, they're not you know stories you would normally hear. Um, but one of the, the things that, that came out of it, I spoke to a family. Um, I used to be friendly with a family. They now live in Israel, but they used to live in Crown Heights. Um, they used to host Bob when he would come to Crown Heights, or there were at least one of the families that would. Um, and he was a pretty re- pretty regular over there for Friday night meals or, you know, when he'd come um, for various uh, various occasions. And I spoke to them about it, and basically they said that, yeah, he, after a while, he, he, you know, because they had a very open home. They had a lot of different people at their table. And, you know, um, I love uh, Jewish brothers and sisters, but certainly there can be a high Nidnik quotient you know um you know among regular people you know just just trying to push into your business but certainly if they get wind that there's this very famous people people don't have a lot of tact you know so they said basically that you know it only took a one or two times when somebody made a a comment that made him feel uncomfortable that he stopped coming altogether and and they, they they got this strong sense that he had a very hard time being feeling safe you know, I mean, here here, he he thought he was in a Hasidic enclave. <laughs> he would feel safe, you know, kind of a little bit anonymous, you know. Um, but it didn't, you know, it didn't necessarily work out that way. But then he, he came that, and you can see in that picture I sent you where he's completely hooded. You know, he was, he's very shielded, you know, even, I mean, in a very ex- exposed environment. Um, and so he really, uh, you know, that was something that was, that's clearly a big theme for him. I mean, when I, I like I told you, i, I recorded with Brian Stoltz, who was, um, who recorded with the Oh Mercy album with him. So he told me a lot of different stories about how, you know, he was really, um, you know, he, he had, he, I mean, out of, he, he basically said that he's the, always the sharpest guy in the room, you know, and it's kind of, it kind of seems like almost in a way by necessity, you know, cause he kind of has to keep himself protected in a way. Um, but you know, he told me this, this one story that was, that, uh, he said he was playing at a festival, um, he hadn't seen him, he hadn't, it had been years, and they hadn't been in touch, and he was playing, you know, Brian Stoltz was playing at this festival, and he looks, and and there was no, like, it wasn't like Dylan was playing in the area at all, but he looked over at the side of the stage, and he sees the curtain part, and he sees a hooded face <laughs> peek out from the curtain, and he's like, he was just, and he, like, you know, looked, it was looked like Dylan, but he was like, it was in the middle of a set, so he finished his set, he walked over the curtain, he opened it up, and, like, there was nobody there, but then, like, he popped out and he's like, "Hey, Brian, remember me? It's Bob." <laughs> 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 That's you mean, remember me. But he's anyway. like
1: Batman or something. He
2: just yeah, yeah, it yeah. It was just like just out, just out of nowhere. He, yeah. Wow. He just, just appeared. But the, one, one other story I wanted to share with you, with the, you know, the, the the Lubavitcher Rebbe, when he first came to so Rabbi Friedman had said when he first came to Crown Heights, with, uh, with Bob, they, they came to. The big Central Synagogue, seven hundred and seventy um, in, uh, in in Brooklyn, and um, this was, I think, this is probably early eighties, and they had they they went to one of the big gatherings. So, I mean, there's there's easily a few thousand people in this huge room, um, but the Rebbe was well known for basically <laughs> being completely aware of everything going on, um, and um, that's a whole other topic. But essentially, um, so the Rebbe acknowledged. Different people, and and he his eyes passed over Bob a number of times, but he never looked straight at him. And afterward, he was a little disturbed by this because he, he was you know he made contact. The Rebbe made a contact with, and it was a very powerful thing if the Rebbe make eye contact with somebody and and said lachaim, meaning said you know uh, had a drink with them um, by you know make sharing that moment. But he didn't do that with Bob, so he was kind of disturbed by it, and he asked Rabbi Friedman what's going on. So, um, so Rebbe Friedman had heard. That the Rebbe had the Rebbe had known that Bob was coming to that uh, gathering, so he asked one of his assistants. He said, "Did he did he come?" Meaning, it wasn't just it wasn't that he ignored him; he didn't see him. Mm. This is a strange story. <laughs> and so, so Rabbi Friedman kind of figured out after, um, you know, speaking to one of the assistants, of the Rebbe, that Bob needed to go to um, what's called a, you know, a mikvah, which is like a, a ritual bath, which is a you know, a. a, a it's a custom that specific men will go every day, um, women will go um, at certain times in the month. Um, it's a certain spiritual cleansing, and so he went, and and then he came, and the Rebbe gave him a big, a big acknowledgement, um, as if as if he was washing away something of his past. I thought that was interesting. You know, right. anyway, I don't, this is a little tangent, but you, you'd asked me last time for some Bob yeah, stories that were unique, so It's
1: <laughs> remarkable. He really is one of I, this is some. I read. It, we're going to wrap this up here because I mean, we would go on and on about who's number two. Anybody <laughs> listening to this already owns Modern Times, so I'm not going to <laughs> tell you. It's revelatory. But, uh, you know, I saw a, a comment about him written many years ago where they said that, you know, it is one of the things that is, is is interesting to behold that for a guy who has to interact with the the, the wider world as much as he does, Bob Dylan is one of the just strangest cats you're ever, you know, he's an odd guy. He just doesn't, he lives his life in a very particular way. And he is able to sort of, you know, when when he butts butts up against the sort of larger world uh, of entertainment or pop culture, he is out of place because he just doesn't conform to the rhythms that we expect everybody to sort of participate in. And I think about the time... Again, we're getting way off the topic, but I think about when he when he performed live uh, at the Oscars, and he did things have changed, and it was right. you know, the camera was right in his face, and after it was over, he looked a little kind of uh, like not sure where to go, and then they cut to Jennifer Lopez who introduced him, Jennifer Lopez who cuts, and she's kind of giggling, right. and she's giggling, and I know she's giggling at Bob, you know, it's right. kind of like oh, look at the crazy old man, and you're like, but, all right, but he's you know, he's not used to that. he lives a completely different life than what you may maybe would expect he lives. And I think that it, it surfaces in, like I said, those pho- that photo you sent me, it, it surfaces in these stories we hear, and it surfaces in the music. I mean, I, again, I don't think that a typical musician of Bob Dylan's stature, of a very few that are of his stature, could write Working Man's Blues number 2 and, and pull it off.
2: Well, I, I mean arguably nobody <laughs> nobody <laughs> could. I mean to bring it back to topic though I mean I think that's a function of this work ethic I mean I think that whole thing maybe he plays by his own rules because he plays based on a, he, he I mean not just he plays he lives by his own rules because he lives by an inner compass right that's that and and, and again I think this is a anybody can learn from this I think this is a, a great lesson for anybody even if you're not going to be as eccentric, or, or right. you know, um, <laughs> yeah. try try to aspire to be successful, you know, and even a fraction of the success of Abdullah. but but in order, but I think that that if you really get it, I mean, what, I mean, it seems from his perspective, if you really get it, you know, then you're you're kind of doing your, you know, you're you're heroically doing your thing, mm-hmm. which which you're guided by inner compass and inner ethics and. And you're not so overwhelmed or concerned by by the, you know, the superficial world that will tear your mind away from contemplation. And, you know, yeah. um, and, and that's kind of, I think, the lesson, the t- takeaway, I mean, that this song and, you know, connection to this song and, and his um, way of dealing with his unique and, and kind of strange eccentric way of dealing with the world is that, you know, there's there's a way to live from, from inner principles that. You know, it doesn't make make a perfect person a perfect person, right? By any means, but but it, but it gives. You know, he, at the be- very beginning of the Scorsese documentary, he he says something to the effect of, you know, an artist needs to be constantly in a, in a process of of becoming, and if you do that, you'll kind of be all right. <laughs> and you know, it, fe- it feels like he kind of he's figured out a certain sense of of, of uh, again an inner compass of of how you live. Th- these are my values. I'm gonna kind of live like this. <laughs> And I'll go through this crazy journey and all these things will happen, but it's all going to kind of work out all right, you know, because these values are solid. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, any of us can learn from that in our own, own sphere.
1: Absolutely. That's a good place to end this. I think that's a great place. Cause yeah, this is. Working Men's Blues is is one of those songs that uh like I said it remains my favorite song off this album and I think it's it's a wonderful song. The one last thing I will mention is that I do always like to mention uh, how many times he's done this in concert. Uh between the, in the basically the last 10 years, uh, he's done this 265 times. So that's that's kind of more than I would expect. This is a long song. Mm. It probably doesn't fill people with uh you know the 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 notion of like, "Oh, I can't wait to hear Working Men's Blues number 2." <laughs> but, uh, but he clearly likes it and you know so i i've never heard him do it live i hope i would love to hear him do it in front of me sometime but uh he mm. hasn't done it in July 11th 2015 is the last time he's done it so it's been a year so i hopefully hopefully he'll he'll pull it out again at some point because as i said i think it's a it's a masterpiece of his song.
2: yeah i agree it's one of his absolute masterpieces
1: all right so uh, Yisrael, thank you so much, man, for coming back on. I always have so much fun Pleasure. talking to you. Uh, you're, thank you, Raoul. You definitely uh, upped my game on this show, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> so where can people find you on the Internet?
2: So, um, again, you know, go to go to uh, Bandcamp, Brooklyn Jazz Warriors, just to hear our... Um, I, I want to just actually... Um, you know, we have an, a second album, which is not up there. which is just kind of private. But if anybody's interested in hearing it, you know, I just we'll, we'll just throw this out there. I'm happy to share it. If uh, you just, Send an email to Brooklyn Jazz Warriors at Gmail. Um, I'll send you a, a download code of our second album. But oh, you can get awesome. the first album streaming. I'll send it to you, Rob, if I, if I hadn't already. But I'll, um, you can get, yeah, the first album is up there streaming on Bandcamp. At band, um, I forget the exact link, but Bandcamp we'll slash the link Brooklyn in Jazz show Warriors. We'll have the link yeah, in
1: the thanks. Show notes. Yeah, absolutely. So. Cool. All right, well, and, uh, if of course, you want to follow the show, go to Twitter, pod underscore Dylan, and you can find this and all our other great shows over on our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So, again, Israel, thanks again, man. I really, really thanks, appreciate Israel. it. I always enjoy this. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and I think we'll see you in two weeks. We're going to do another show in two weeks, so we'll see you then. Uh, in the meantime, though, I do want to – this is the very last thing. This episode, uh, when it goes up, uh, go vote. Go vote. Do your civic duty. And go vote. If, you, if you're an American citizen, please go ahead and vote. Bob would want you to, and uh, I want you to. So make sure you go ahead and vote, everybody. So, okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you later. Bye.
0: There's an evening haze settling over town, starlight by the end of the green. Buying power of the proletariat's gone down Money's getting shallow and weak Well, the place I love best is a sweet memory It's a new path that we draw They say low wages are reality If we want to compete abroad My cruel weapons have been put on the shelf Come sit down on my knees I dearer to me than myself, as you yourself can see. While I'm listening to the steel rails, i hum, got both eyes tight shut, Just sitting here trying to keep the hunger from creeping its way into my gut. Meet me at the bottom, don't lag behind. Bring me my boots and shoes. You can hang. Go fight your best on the front line Sing a little bit of these working bands